Welcome to the She Recovers podcast. I'm Taryn Strong, co-founder with my mother Dawn Nickel of She Recovers. She Recovers believes that we are all recovering from something. And here on She Recovers podcast, we examine the healing power of connection and intentional living, as well as what happens in our lives when we put down our past stories and pick up our soul's true purpose. In this episode of the She Recovers podcast, Erin talks with Heidi Harmon. As the current mayor of San Luis Obispo, Heidi is guiding her community into a politics of belonging, where every citizen is equally heard, seen, and valued. Heidi's background as a house cleaner and preschool teacher, as well as her choice to act in her political role from a very feminine energy, has made her a target for those who are uncomfortable with feminine power. Heidi shares how she uses that and other challenges to become even more aligned with her values and purpose. She also discusses how women can help move our culture from one based in rugged masculine individualism to a more balanced, compassionate society. I am so excited to welcome to the She Recovers podcast my friend, uh, and San Luis Obispo Mayor Heidi Harmon. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hey, Heidi. Hi. So, um, let's just jump right into it. I, I thought about whether we should preface this whole thing with how we met, or um, but I think that'll come out in the course okay. of the conversation. So let's just jump right into our our podcast question. We start off with um, which is what brought you into the recovery space? Were you struggling? with the behavior, a relationship, a past event, all of these are something else. So thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I thought about this question. Recovery isn't a word that um, is centered in my life, but I, I think it's a really great word for a lot of different things. And I think when I was thinking about this, one of the things I think I'm um, working on is recovering from the idea that I am better off sort of on my own, that I'm independent, um, person and that I don't need sort of need anybody else and that type of thing. And I think that, um, that's part of the work that I'm doing both for myself and my community is reminding us all that we are all connected and that we all need each other. And that this sort of independent American idea is really, um, failing and that we need to see that we all are interdependent and need each other, especially in light of things like climate crisis and things like that. So I think I'm a recovering um, independent um, person in that way, you know, feeling like I can do everything on my own. Yeah. So there's so much about that that I am so eager to unpack because, first of all, you you seem to be unafraid to use the word recovery in a way that is still um, respectful of the fact that that word has been used in a very um, vulnerable way. Mm-hmm. Lots of us who use that, you know, came to it almost in a, um, like, I didn't want to say for a long time, I didn't want to say I was in recovery. I didn't like that word. Mm-hmm. It affiliated me with a, um, with behaviors and with, uh, you would use that word and people would suddenly assume a bunch of things about you that mm-hmm, were, mm-hmm. were not true, but were honestly nothing I really wanted to um, address publicly. So I had mm-hmm. to, really, for years, I had to talk myself into using that word. And mm-hmm. once I did, I still used it in a very 
um, I used it in a very established, traditional way. But I don't want us to anymore. I want to bring that world out, but that word out into the wider world. And um, that, of course, as She Recovers says, we're all recovering from something. So I'm very excited and grateful that you are embracing that and seeing it in a, in a much wider way. Um, because to, by doing that, you create exactly what it is it sounds like you're recovering from, which is a lack. You create the, the connections that we need to help us build the vibrant, beautiful world that you know we all are hoping to do. Yeah, I'm really trying to cultivate vulnerability um, and demonstrate through my own work and my own way of showing up that vulnerability is is truly a strength. And I think that that's very, you know, very difficult, especially for someone in my position as a female identified person in a masculine role um, to still come at that with what I would describe as a more feminine place and a more vulnerable place. Um, I think it's challenging, but to me, that feels like where um, the real work is and where the hope is and people seem to resonate with that. And so I think talking about recovery or any of these things that we're all working through is part of that commitment to being vulnerable and being vulnerable publicly um, and with the hopes that that inspires others to feel comfortable showing up as their full selves. Because that's if you're not willing to be vulnerable, you're not willing to be your full self. And to me, that's ultimately the thing that I'm after for my own self and my own journey is how can I be more authentically me? And I think that that fear around being vulnerable really keeps that authenticity from fully blossoming. So um, that's something that I'm working on cultivating and um, am and excited to see happening more and more in our culture. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the thing that you're, that you're in recovery from is sort of this idea of rugged individualism, right? Right. You don't need anybody else. And if you do, you're weak. And that that means something's wrong with you. So this is the story we Americans have been told um, and sold. And not just Americans, but I think that's a, a, you know, unfortunately a global, (laughs) a global message that seems to have taken root in lots of places beyond. Well, and you can see the nexus between that impulse and more traditional issues around recovery. Um, I'm currently reading the book that of the author that you had on recently, like a woman. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And I just love what she's talking about and the nexus of the political and, um, people that are abusing substances and things like that. Like the, the really strong thread that she ties between those two ideas, I think is really interesting. And I can see how, if you're trying to, you know, tough it out on your own, alcohol or whatever it is, whether it's alcohol or food or shopping, those things support help are are what you're using to get you through that toughing it out on your own, as opposed to, wow, you know, my life, this job, this moment in time in history or what have you is so tough. And I need to build relationships with real human people as a healthier mechanism to help support me through this time, as opposed to trying to tough it out on my own while being supported by some really unhealthy coping mechanisms. So I can see that the nexus between those two things could be strong for people. Yeah. Yeah. The story of rugged individualism and the idealization, idealization of that message is then reinforced by the various addictions we all go to, whatever they Mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, 
And, and then, you know, now I'm just going to move into how it is that we met, because if you're a listener of the podcast, you've heard me say in a couple of different episodes that I have found such great um, wisdom in the work of Charles Eisenstein. And that is where Heidi and I met. We went, we uh, met it on, on a retreat. It was a week-long workshop with Charles where we did um, a, a deep dive into his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And Heidi, I'm, you know, I was there, you know, really in a role as a mother. I mean, at the, during the week, um, throughout the week, you know, we, we all, there was about 30 of us there and everyone was there for different reasons. Everyone had come to Charles's work and was looking for answers in his work for different reasons. And I, I found his work um, really, it was, it was helpful to me in my recovery because so much of my recovery was, um, so much of my recovery is recovering from fear, recovering mm-hmm. from fear as a mother. Like what, mm-hmm. what is the world? What, what kind of world are we living in? What kind of world are we leaving for our children? And in the end, one, one of the exercises, you know, we kind of had to have the question. Like if you had a guru and you, you had one question you could ask that person and you knew you were going to get, you know, an answer that was very meaningful to you, what would the question be? And my question centered around, you know, what can I give to my children to help them survive, to help them thrive? You know, what am I not giving them? that they are going to need in a world that, you know, every day is different than the one more, more different than the one we knew before. So that was kind of how I came into Charles's work. And, um, and I know you being the mayor of San Luis Obispo, you and a single mom, um, I don't know what your question was, but I, I am assuming it was maybe something along those lines or something completely different, but do you remember that exercise and what your question was? Well, I, I, I totally resonate with you in terms of the maternal being a really strong impulse in how I show up in the world and my work. And I've felt that maternal connection since I was a kid myself. Growing up in a family that actually has a lot of addiction in it. And um, I feel like, you know, in that first wave of divorced families in the 1970s and both my parents being um, not really showing up for my sister and myself in a way that really felt good. And so I've had this commitment to my kids since I was 12 to do everything I could to be the so-called best mom I could. And so my climate activism and my running for office and all of that are an extension of that maternal commitment that I made when I was a kid myself. Um, So I definitely feel that. I think the question I'm always asking the universe, so to speak, is what is mine to do and how can I be most of service? And I'm, I'm always really curious about that. And that's what's led me to these different things that I have done, whether it's been to go out to Texas and protest the tar sands pipeline and that type of thing, or whether it's to uh, run for mayor of my town, I'm always trying to figure out where I can make the most difference. I personally, I'm really interested in impact. Um, I know that I think Charles's work is suggests that, you know, it's all important, like whether you're taking care of your little kids or whether you're, you know, doing some bigger, more globally oriented work. And and I agree that it's all valuable. I'm not 100% convinced that things that don't have bigger impact aren't more valuable on some level. So I'm I'm definitely interested in, in impact. So that's what I'm always trying to figure out where I can make the biggest impact. Well, I love, I love that we're together on this then because um, I... You know, I've really come 
kind of full circle on that conversation with myself around what is impactful and does it need to be big to be bad? You know, does it need to be big mm-hmm. to, to really make, um, make a difference? And I can tell you that I, I'm now very comfortable in a softer, quieter space because I know that I can be louder and bigger if I need to be. Uh-huh. That's not what calls to me right now. That mm-hmm. is not all. So I'm, I love that we're both here. We're both showing up in very mm-hmm. different ways, but in ways that we feel comfortable with. And, um, and I'm sure the women that are listening to this podcast, maybe they can fall in between the two of us in various yeah. ways. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely all important. And for people like me that are sort of have a bigger platform or out in the so-called front and all of that, I couldn't do the work I'm doing without some of those people that are more comfortable and seem to come more alive in the support roles. Um, those are really key people. And oftentimes it is true that, you know, women that bring me snacks, for example, which I always talk about because it's a small thing, but it really means a lot to me. So those smaller acts are profound. They profoundly affect me. Um, And so it, it definitely all matters and it all sort of amalgamizes into, you know, doing the work of making the world a better place. Yeah. And knowing that what you're doing now you know, if you, um, the work I'm doing now in a, it, to look at it, you know, in sort of the, the framework that we usually work, look at things, which is Heidi's the mayor and she's got a, a microphone and she's, mm-hmm. you know, on a TED talk stage. I love all that for you. And where I am right now, I would not be, um, I would not be ready to be authentic and vulnerable in those places. I mean, maybe that's like the litmus test. Where can you put yourself where you still feel you're making an impact, you're showing up, you're doing what you can to um, take care of yourself and your family and your community and not stress yourself out? I mean, we don't – look, so many of us are, um, you know – I don't want to stress myself out anymore. I don't want to put too many things on my calendar. I don't want to put too many. Um, I don't want to um, say yes to too many things and not be able to show up for myself and my family. So mm-hmm. yes, the world is saving, and I'm saving. <laughs> I'm not showing up as a big like yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's real. And more more of us need to be thoughtful about that. That so much of the work that needs to be done is that interpersonal work. You know, that if you're showing up in your brokenness, um, you're not going to be helpful, generally speaking, right? And um, you're right. People don't need people just to show up just to be a body in a place. You know, you need when you show up fully and, 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 and being present and being able to hold the space for people and all those things, it takes doing that interpersonal work. And if you're having a day or a month or a year or a whole part of your life where you can't do that, that's, that's certainly okay too. You know, there's definitely um, a lot of people that show up to this work that really would do well to be more reflective about their own personal work. Um, Yeah. And I, you know, I can see too that folks that are living with deep addiction challenges too. I mean, that's real. And you probably can't add in a whole lot else. You know, I see sometimes, you know, on social media, um, I'll see a quote um, by by like Robert Downey Jr., for example, I just saw this a couple days ago, and he was talking about, you know, how 
when you're in that process, like just maybe getting out of bed and not using that day is huge. And so those moments and those days for people in their process need to be fully honored and supported. And folks need to know that you are enough and that is enough. Um, you know, I think that we see people even on the global stage who are clearly working out childhood wounds <laughs> in a way that is putting literally the world, the entire world at risk. And so if some of those folks, and I think we can think of at least one, if not more in particular, you know, if they were doing the work of addressing their childhood wounds, right, we wouldn't all be so terrified. And, um, and so that's real, you know, doing that work and doing what's authentic for you in that moment needs to be valued and validated for sure. Like you were talking about having a calendar that you could feel good about. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, when we go and show up at things we don't really want to be at, again, that's where these sort of other mechanisms that aren't as healthy can kick in to support us in those moments. If you're coming, going to a bunch of meetings and you don't want to be there, um, are you going to be more susceptible to over drinking and overeating and over everything at, in those spaces? Because that's your way, your psych psychology or even your physiology, logical way of saying, help me. I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, I need to be at home with my family and I'm not, and now I'm here and I'm resentful or whatever the feelings are. And I'm trying to mask those with these other mechanisms that aren't serving me or the, or, or the space that I'm in. Yeah. So let's, let's, um, let's pack this up a little bit because I'd love to know your personal story as you come into, um, an awareness and a recovery of, um, you know, the need for a full complement of re of meaningful relationships, you know, uh -huh. behind the story of rugged individualism and, and then maybe can you kind of take us through, um, you know, how you, how you became aware of, of that and then how that brought you to run for mayor? Sure. So I think it does start with my own childhood as everything does and feeling this feeling of, I guess, rejection on some level or lack of nurturing, I think it would be key. And so I did make this promise to my kids when I was a little girl that I would be the best mom I could. And I really tried to live with that or live by that commitment. And I, for example, I have a degree in early childhood education. I was a preschool teacher for a long time. Um, I, I babysat a lot and all of those things were about getting experience so that I could translate those into being a mom. I have a degree in liberal studies and I, and I focused on actually homeschooling cause I knew I wanted to do that. And so when I had my kids, I, I did homeschool them. Eventually I became a, a single mom and was still homeschooling them. And the only job I could come up with to maintain that priority was being a house cleaner. So I cleaned houses for a decade, at least raising my kids um, and it was along that path that probably about 15 years or so ago that I started to hear about this thing called global warming. I'm sure it was Al Gore um, initially and his movie and all of that. And it just slowly started to creep into my consciousness that, hey, wait a minute, this seems like this is going to be a big deal. This seems like it's going to be really bad and it's going to impact my kids and potentially shorten their lives in potentially terrifying ways. And so I started to feel like there was nothing else that I could do that I felt comfortable with outside of being part of the solutions to that as an extension of my maternal commitment. And so I slowly started to get more involved and 
just do stuff and just try stuff. I didn't really even necessarily so-called know what I was doing. Um, so I would have marches, I would join protests, I would create that stuff. I would join organizations with the intention of moving the needle on their conversation around climate change. And this, um, slowly led me to consider running for office. Um, the first time I ran for office was in 2014 for a state level position that I knew I couldn't win in the traditional sense of the word, but I also knew, again, it was in that moment, the best opportunity that I had as one person to make an impact. And even though I did lose, I felt like we won the narrative around climate and energy issues. Um, and I didn't necessarily think, oh, that now I'm a politician, this is my life, I'll run for office again for sure at all. I mean, um, politicians have a pretty negative um, standing in our culture, and rightfully so, oftentimes. So I wasn't necessarily drawn to that as a role. Um, but I worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign here in my community and was <clears throat> really committed to him and his values and was so frustrated and disappointed by the way he was treated by the Democratic Party and the media during the last campaign that after coming going to the convention for him, I was really depressed and really felt like I'm quitting. I'm over it. I'm just going to go back to being a so-called normal person who's not going to care about this stuff. I'm just going to do whatever I want and do my own thing and have fun and whatever. Um, but after three days of really feeling that sense of disconnection and depression, um, I decided to do what Bernie had said, and that was really don't get mad, go home and run for office. And so I, I got mad and I ran for office and won my mayoralship against a 20-year incumbent by about 46 votes, which is a big deal for people that don't follow politics to win against an incumbent um, was major. And it was another woman and it was another Democrat. Um, but I think as we're seeing, as at least is really clear to me, there's a lot of difference um, in the Democratic Party. Um, and so since I've been mayor, we've been able to do a lot on climate change. We have the most ambitious carbon neutrality goal in any city in the United States. But more than that, we've been able to really, I think, create a community of care where people are seen and heard and valued. You know, we haven't celebrated Columbus Day since I've been mayor. We only celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. We have a sanctuary city. Um, there's been a lot of effort to make sure that people, especially people in marginalized groups, feel included as a part of our community. And I'm committed to being positive and constructive, and I think that that's also been a part of creating what I would call a politics of belonging, where people are invited to be at the table and share their ideas and concerns about moving forward in our community. So do you see this as, um, do you see you, your work as a way to heal yourself too? 100%. 100%. How, in a more personal way, I mean, I appreciate all the things you said, you know, and I, and I understand that, you know, as a, as a politician, those are kind of, as you go to list your accomplishments. Huh? You think in that way, but I'm going to ask you to think more personally about how this is changing you, and I'm going to ask you to do it from from a place of um, you know a vulnerability because you you are a single mom, mm -hmm. you are beautiful, and I know that you receive a lot of um, comments on your looks. Mm -hmm. and women in politics uh, are are much more likely to receive threats and comments, mostly not nice ones. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that's, that's got to be impact. That has to impact you. Yes. And then I also want you, if you would, if you feel comfortable to talk about the money part of this, because one of the things that I read is I, you know, you live in a trailer and that that uh-huh. has also become <laughs> part of your, of what people, how people attack you. Mm-hmm. Yes. I live in a mobile home. So I used to live in this most beautiful house in town. Um, and when I was first mayor and that I was in a relationship that was associated with the type of financial security that unfortunately you need to be in this role because I'm not getting compensated very much at all. Um, And so I came to a point though in that relationship where I felt like it was keeping me from being my best, most authentic self and really showing up strongly in the world. And so I had to leave that relationship. And when I did, I left 90% of all my personal possessions I got rid of and had no house and no car also. Um, And so now I live in a mobile home with this beautiful 90 year old woman. and I'm car free, which is something I had been wanting to do anyway. And so I kind of used that that shift in life to even get more in alignment with my values. Um, and so it's actually been a great experience. But yes, people do criticize me for being, um, I guess, sort of working class person that I used to be a house cleaner. They hate that. A preschool teacher, they criticize me for that because, of course, both of those roles are very grounded in the feminine. Um, and now I live in a mobile home. And so they want to call me trailer trash and things like that, um, which, you know, hurts me a little bit. But mostly it's sad. It saddens me to see the complete um, disregard and criticism of people that are really working hard, um, women in particular, that are really carrying our families and carrying this community in so many ways, um, that somebody like me would be any less valuable than somebody like an affluent white male homeowner who doesn't need to work. Um, I think, you know, all of those voices should be valuable. Um, and so it's unfortunate that people criticize that um, because, yeah, I think that's a problem of probably across the United States that people in roles like mine are not getting compensated well. And it keeps a lot of people, um, people of color and women from being able to pursue these roles, which then directly impacts policy. So you can see how it's a self-perpetuating system that affluent white males um, fill these roles primarily. They can afford to do these roles um, and then the policy follows that demographic and it doesn't necessarily serve the whole community. Um, but in terms of my own healing, you know, I think I felt, um, I think maybe disempowered. I didn't really have a voice. I didn't necessarily feel nurtured and cared for as a child. And I completely understand now my mother's, her own background and why that had to be that way. And I have, really nothing but love and forgiveness for her. Um, But still, that was my experience. And so I think that this has allowed me to mother myself and be that maternal presence for my own children, but also sort of a maternal presence in my community. Um, I have a shirt that someone made for me based on a quote that I said once, that moms make great mares. And I think that that's really true, that being a mom and being a mare are very similar in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that, that, so that's definitely allowed me to n- nurture and care for myself in ways that I didn't necessarily experience as a child. And also to be able to have a voice and an impact that I didn't feel like I necessarily had as a child. Um, so, and then in terms of how I get treated, it's interesting that there is a, you can see that the feminine is ascendant right now. 
And that is why there is so much heightened misogyny and attacks and all of that sort of thing. And people do want to comment on my looks. And I think part of the way I present that agitates some is that it is in a very feminine way. Um, you know, I wear this rose every day. I have a pretty feminine way of being in the world. And I don't shy away from that. Um, and one of the reasons I wear the rose is because I want it to be really clear that when I venture the space, the feminine is in the space. So I don't come at this role the way a lot of females have in the past from coming from the masculine. Um, I come really from the feminine. And a lot of people are excited about it and embrace that, but it definitely causes some fear and agitation amongst those that are rightfully recognizing that power is shifting in our communities and in our culture and they are at risk of losing their traditional role of being you know if I'm a white male person of privilege I'm used to having that expectation that I'm going to be in charge and now we're seeing people like myself and so many women across the United States ascending and it threatens that power um, and so there's a lot of fear around that so they attack me I think out of that fear yeah and as you bring the feminine into politics, it also addresses, you know, go, just to go back to the beginning of the conversation, this idea of dismissing the, the um, idealization of the rugged individual. Because mm -hmm. part of that feminine approach, right, is to create the community, is to widen the table and to invite more people in. I mean, that is, that's, you know, the feminine energy. Rugged individualism is very masculine. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I talked about when we were together at our retreat was this impulse. And I think part of my nature and probably combined with my upbringing is to, I, I feel very oriented around being a fighter, you know, and fighting my, fighting bad guys and fighting the fossil fuel industry and fighting evil and fighting, you know, misogyny and all that sort of stuff. I feel very energized with that kind of um, framing. Um, and, and that too, though, is of course coming from the masculine. And so my personal work is about trying to figure out when or how to be with that energy, because I may not be able to ever leave that completely behind, but how to balance that at least with that more feminine, um, communicative, coming to consensus as opposed to fighting. Like how can we connect and communicate and consent, if that's a word, our way to these solutions as opposed to coming in and just trying to fight and destroy and dismantle. Um, because you can see those masculine systems, capitalism in particular, is, dis is destroying itself. And that I think is what you see with the toxic masculine, that yes, it has a certain type of power and it's definitely been able to maintain power for obviously centuries. And though we're coming to an end of that and it's sort of folding in on itself and destroying itself. And so we wanna be careful that as females, as female identified people, we don't come in in female bodies, but still carry on those masculine tools. Um, and so for me, that's a, that's a struggle that I'm working through and really trying to change um, my metaphors even. Like this may sound silly, and um, I don't know if your listeners will resonate, but you see a lot in our culture 
about the unicorn, right? Especially little girls. And, you know, like I grew up in the 80s. Unicorns were very popular. I totally get it. I have this unicorn stuffed animal love. Rainbow unicorns, great. And love, love, love the unicorn, right? Because why? Because there's nobody else like it in the whole world, you know? And we sort of love that idea that we are these like special unicorns. And so, but recently though, I've been really switching from, do I really want to be a unicorn or would I rather be a zebra? Because zebras are actually so much cooler. First of all, they're real. <laughs> Secondly, the way they, they defend themselves is not to separate, but in fact, to unite. And that's what their stripage is all about is, and it's also called the dazzle of zebras, a big group of zebras. That's their name, a dazzle. And they come together and they, and they create the illusion of being one giant force with their striping. And to me, that's actually what I'm more interested in. And so, yes, I still, and it's so funny because I have them like they're right here underneath my bed because one of my secrets, and I'll, and I'll tell your audience, is that I sleep with a stuffed animal every night, a fellow pet. But I've switched from the unicorn, and my best friend got me the zebra this past year <laughs> because that's the, that's the mode that I'm most interested in. How can we be more like a dazzle of zebras and a little bit less like these spectacular, unreal, um, only one like it in the world, unicorns. And so um, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to grapple with in my own work. Heidi, I'm I'm in I'm more in love with you right now than I was at the beginning of the call. <laughs> that is so a dazzle of zebras. Sign yeah, me up. I want I'm 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 on board. And you know, like even thinking about a grouping of zebras, you know, the ego can get in the way of wanting to be part of that, you know? And I, I can see that even in myself. Like I look at zebras and I'm like, eh, they're fine. They're cool. But this is like a big group as opposed to like the image you get of a unicorn. Right. Um, but we need to be more like the zebra, um, especially women, you know, like we, um, we need to work together and support each other and, and group up. And, you know, I just saw, I think it was Abby Wambach. If you follow her on social media, you know, so she had this most uh, soccer goals of anyone, male or female, um, internationally forever. She was holding that record. But someone who I don't know because I don't really follow sports just broke that record yesterday, I think. And so she did this beautiful tribute to her. Um, about, And the whole thing was, was, was really grounded in this idea that when one woman succeeds, we all succeed. And so it was really more about that dazzle of zebras idea as opposed to these, this unicorn idea, you know, that I'm the best and there's nobody else like me. I'm special. And, and there's truth in that. And that can be helpful at times, you know, that we are special. That's true. Like we all have our own unique gifts. But I think one of the, the gifts I'm trying to bring is to create these ideas of we are, we are truly stronger together and we need to get over ourselves and unite because there is a lot of, of dangerous forces at play right now. And so we need to get out of our own way and do what we need to do that's best for the collective, I would say. Yeah. And as part of that, and you sort of touched on it earlier, is this idea of what power is uh -huh. and old ideas of what power is and what you need in order to be powerful in the world. And, um, you know, I know while we were together, there was a, there was a moment <clears throat> where one of the other participants who I would love to have her on the podcast, had um, she was of Native American descent uh -huh. and had been raised to be very ashamed of that. 
Uh-huh. And as, a, as an adult, as um, a, you know, a woman in her 30s and 40s, I, it seemed, I think this is her story. She kind of reclaimed that. She mm-hmm. started learning about her heritage in a way that was, um, you know, that has removed the shame as much as it can. I, she's, she still um, struggles with that. But she performed for us um, a drum ceremony. Mm-hmm. And watching her do that was so powerful. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was a power. Her song, her um, her instrument produced a magical spell. Uh-huh. That, I mean, we were all frozen and just... I don't even know. I don't, I don't even know. How, I've thought back on that so often, Heidi. I mean, I was, I was weeping at the end of it because she, she, what, what it said to me is it was, it was as if, and I, of course don't, I didn't understand the words that she was saying. I mean, they were in her native American language that, but, um, but it was evocative in, in, in this way, no matter what she, the words that she was saying, the message was, I have lost so much mm-hmm. and we collectively have lost so much and only by recognizing that loss collectively can mm-hmm. we move through this and um and be whole again mm-hmm. i mean that's, that's what that was and it was so powerful and there was no weapon there you know, mm-hmm. the tool was her voice. The tool was mm-hmm. her and the tool was her instrument. And it really shifted for me, which of course was why, you know, kind of why that exercise, I guess, was introduced. It shifted for me what power is and what women can bring into mm-hmm. the our communities and into our conversations around what's important and who we're gonna value, um, and what we're gonna see as powerful. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, and my recollection is that when you're witnessing something like that, you're witnessing somebody who's really in their truth and the power and the the field sort of opens up, I feel like, to support us all when we're really where we're supposed to be and doing the work we're supposed to be doing. And you can feel it in your own life, like things start to really connect and click together. You can feel it in your own body. And it seemed like she was having an experience of, um, like, that's the work that she's intended to be doing. And she's like, finally embracing that and doing that. And there's so much power in that. Um, Yeah. But you're right. There's also so much grief. Just, you know, I, I feel like in some ways, even just reclaiming the feminine um, is part of what I'm doing and what a lot of people are doing. And then there's the grief about that too, that, man, we have been so marginalized, um, so much violence um, against us, all of this disenfranchisement and shutting out and disempowering of the feminine forever, literally. Um, what a what a, what a sad um, state of affairs, so to speak. Um, and if this, so I think right now a lot of us are doing a lot of holding the grief and also rising up and putting a lot of really positive, um, authentic truth telling into the, into the field, so to speak. Yeah. So we have to move to wrap up because I know you have a busy day or day ahead of you, but I have just a few more questions and um, okay. I wanted to ask you what, when, this is one of my favorite questions to ask women 
who are in recovery, which is what are the stories that you tell yourself now? So when you think back to 20 years ago, when uh-huh. you think back to um, 20 to 2000, mm-hmm. what are you telling yourself then? And how is that different than the story you tell yourself today about what is possible for you? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I had no idea how much difference one person could really make and that that person could be me. Um, you know, and in the first chunk of my activism, I spent a lot of time looking for someone else to follow, essentially. Um, and then realized, well, it doesn't seem like anybody's coming. So I guess it'll be me, you know? Um, and I wish, I guess, I don't really have regret because that's the process, but it would have been nice to really know, really deeply know that. Like you hear that, it's a phrase, like one person can make a difference. Look at Martin Luther King or Gandhi or whatever. Maybe because women don't have a lot of role models like that, we don't resonate with those models as much. Or maybe because we still think like, well, yeah, but but Martin Luther King is this amazing, famous person, but he, but he wasn't originally, you know? And so we don't necessarily embrace that truth that one person could really make a difference that we're all, you know, called, I think up to, to have that capability. Um, and I definitely would have seen, would not have seen that self myself as being that person. Um, you know, this um, role as mayor is in many ways the first sort of so-called real job I've ever had. Like I've never had a job in an office <laughs> or anything like that. So I, I definitely would not have seen myself in this role um, 20 years ago. Um, I think I've also 20 years ago would have not seen myself as so um, committed and connected, but also separate from my, my, my children too, like doing this work um, as an extension of my maternity, but also as my own thing. Um, and so that's kind of, um, I guess, exciting to feel, still feel that maternal connection, but also feel like, okay, you guys, my kids are grown now, so you guys are off doing your thing, and now I'm gonna do this part of my life. Um, and I don't know that I would have seen myself as worthy as I do now. And as smart, you know, that's another word that I didn't necessarily uh, resonate with. Um, so I think when I was, so I'm 50 now, when I was 30, I don't think I would have been as in touch with my own intelligence um, and, that, and as comfortable sharing it and saying, you know, I have something of value to offer in this conversation. So I think a lot of that shifted over the last 20 years. Yeah, I, that's wonderful. So what would you tell your former self, like if you could go back to 2000 and in the year 2000, are you still married? I think that's when I very first left my marriage right around there. And I think it was actually Y2K that in some ways, I mean, it had been coming for a long time, but the actual saying it out loud, I remember Y2K, remember it was sort of theoretically scary and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't really get that worked up about it, but I do remember feeling like, Oh my God, what if we're all going to die? You know, this is my life. What am I doing? And that I think sparked a lot of things. One, I I had been really heavy up to that point. It sparked like an 80 pound weight loss and um, ultimately a, I guess a 200 pound weight loss because I left my husband also. Um, and so it sparked in the kind of second phase of my life. I had gotten married really young. I got married when I was 20. Um, and so 
I just felt like I had outgrown that particular relationship. So, yeah. So I think what would I have told myself then? Um, I think I would have told myself that if you are thinking about leaving a relationship 90% of your day, you need to just need to go ahead and do that and not workshop it with your friends and figure out how, you know, you're spending tons of energy figuring out how you can make it work by staying. If that's a big part of your thought process in any given day, you either need to really go all in and work it out with that person or go all out and just make the jump. I think I had been wanting to leave that relationship for five years probably before I actually did. And a lot of that was based in fear that I had gotten married when I was 20. I didn't know how I was going to take care of myself and my kids. I was having all these just ridiculous impulses like, should I be storing up peanut butter so that when I leave, I have something at least? Like, that's pretty sad. <laughs> I remember that, though. Um, and sure enough, it wasn't easy at all. But I made it through. And if I hadn't done that, I would not have been in the position that I am today where I feel like I'm really making a difference and an impact. So I think I would have told her to just do it already and just make the right decision for me and also for my then husband. You know, it wasn't fair to him either. Um, and I think I would have said, you know, you are worthy, you're amazing, you're smart, and you you can be in these rooms and in these and at these tables and having these conversations. Um, and I think that's to me one of the major gifts about this moment in history and especially about climate change is that it is so urgent and serious and impactful on all of us that I think it's calling people like me and a lot of women in particular up into roles that they normally would not have been able to take. They wouldn't have seen themselves and they wouldn't have been pushed to that sort of limit of, wow, this is an unacceptable situation. And now I guess I'm going to have to step up. And so to me, that's one of the exciting sort of silver linings about this moment is that it's calling a lot of people up that, you know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done probably. Yeah. And we're all, I think so many women are feeling, are feeling that, feeling uh -huh. that call to, to nurture the earth, right? To nurture yeah. yourself, nurture your family, nurture your community. Yes, yes, yes. And then the earth, right? Yeah. So, and I, I'm so grateful for all your work and that when, um, when women in San Luis Obispo and, and in your area, when they feel that calling that they have, um, you to kind of greet them in that space and just beyond you know beyond san Luis obispo just thank you for being a role model to 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 me but honestly heidi to to young girls you know to show them that you can show up in the public sphere as a woman with a rose in her hair uh -huh. you not have to wear pantsuits unless you want to wear pantsuits yeah <laughs> right right to come to with your authentically yeah totally vulnerable with two children as a single mother, you know, on her bike, here I am yep. <laughs> and I'm going to run for mayor. I'm going to be your mayor. And yeah. so what's next for you? What do you, what would you like to see happen next for, for you? You know, I think that's something that I'm grappling with right now. People ask me if I want to run for higher office and I get recruited to do that, but I can tell that I don't think that's my destiny. Um, Anything higher than this local level really requires a lot of things that I don't want to do, like major fundraising and a level of, frankly, BS 
um, and political maneuvering that isn't authentic for me. So I just don't think I'm meant to do that. But I'm interested in the media space because I mostly feel like I'm meant to be a message bearer and someone that can inspire and empower and uplift people to their own power so then they can save their own piece of the earth. You know, um, I, I get it that it's not my job to save the earth. I think I used to say that and, you know, it's always been, of course, a bit of a joke. Obviously, it's such a huge task. But I think now more, if I can empower and inspire others to do their work more effectively um, and authentically, then that really calls to me. So I think I'm meant to shift into the media space. So I'm working on some projects around that. One. And just for your listeners, if they want any support or anything, or they just want to follow me on social media, um, my Instagram and my, my Twitter too, but I'm not much on Twitter, but um, is at Heidi is mighty. And so if they want to see kind of the way I'm doing what I'm doing, that would be a good spot there. Um, and there's a lot of resources around the country. If any of your listeners are considering running for office um, where they can get training and support and things like that. So hopefully, um, and I would, I would encourage your listeners to consider that. Women have to be asked to run seven times before they'll consider running for office. So when I have the chance, I usually try and ask people to run, um, to consider running. Um, and, if, and if that is at all, as you're hearing that, if you're at all thinking, huh, could I do that? Then you're probably, you know, well suited to, to do it. So you should definitely um, consider going for it if it's appropriate in your life right now. So consider Heidi's ask one of the seven that you will have to yeah. ask to. <laughs> Heidi, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Yeah, thank you so much. This is this has been great. It's good to see your face again. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the She Recovers podcast. We hope you will share, rate, subscribe, and help us spread the word. You can always find out more about She Recovers, our intentions and guiding principles, upcoming events and retreats, recovery coaching, online yoga, and so much more on our website, sherecovers.co. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so that we can stay in touch.